welcome to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported LA Review Books. I'm your host, Eric Newman, LARB's Gender and Sexuality Editor, and I'm joined remotely today by LARB Managing Editor, Medea Ocher. Hi, Medea. Hi, Eric. So today we have a conversation with Ayad Akhtar about his new novel, Homeland Elegies, which is, I believe I talk about in the interview, I just devoured this book. It's beautiful. It reads like part autobiography, part memoir, part series of just fascinating cultural essays about the particular moment that we're in, which I should say is the Trumpian moment. And I just thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed this interview. Ayad is insanely smart. <laughs> insane, like he's, he's the kind of person that makes you crazily jealous or envious of all of his gifts. Uh, yeah. And this book was no exception to that. If he's listening to this or if he does listen to this, he'll probably be disappointed. But I really wanted to know what was true and what wasn't. I really did. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I know we, we took the high road in the interview and we didn't, <laughs> didn't go there and we didn't press him because that is not the point of the book. Because it is a mixture of fact and fiction, but he calls it a novel very much so. Mm-hmm. And it seemed obviously more than appropriate to to discuss it that way. But just off the air, I really just wanted to be like, please give me what's real. <laughs> and we didn't get to do that, unfortunately. So so I don't know still, but it was still a, a, a fun and, and fascinating book to read. Yeah. And again, just to, to tee it up for the listeners, you know, one of the things that I think is so fascinating about this book, um, and we talk about this on the interview, is that he gets into, in a particular episode um, where the character is dealing with his father. Both of them are Muslim. The father's an immigrant from Pakistan, which is the part that so closely aligns with Ayad Akhtar's life. And the father is a Trump supporter, kind of against all seemingly reasonable belief. And and rather than kind of turn this into, you know, the son who's against Trump is good and the father who likes Trump is is bad and, you know, false consciousness, um, he really sits with the nuance of trying to understand why a character like the father would cling so desperately to kind of this adulation of, of Trump. And, and that we get into a broader discussion of kind of American culture and fantasy that was just, I, I thought, really great. And I've been thinking about actually in the kind of weeks since our interview. Well, let's get to it. Ayad Akhtar on the line with us today. Ayad is an award-winning playwright, screenwriter, and author whose previous publications include the novel American Dervish and the Pulitzer Prize-winning play Disgraced. He joins us today to talk about his recent book, Homeland Elegies, a novel that blends fact and fiction, reading like a combination of essay, memoir, and perhaps most notably, like a national character study. The book is told from the point of view of the narrator, who's a young Muslim-American man, also named Ayad Akhtar. The book's Akhtar reflects on his experience as the son of immigrant parents from Pakistan, his Muslim identity and faith, especially in the wake of 9-11, and how his family, his story, and his profession fit into the political, economic, and social chaos of present-day America. Ayad, thank you so much for joining us. It's such a pleasure to be here. Thank you. So, Ayad, if we can just start at the jump from just kind of talking about the backstory that brought you to write this novel and to choose the novel as the form for the collection of, I think, kind of stories or threads 
of the present that you're pulling together here? So I was in Rome at the American Academy. My mom had passed away and my dad was, as I recount in the book, the father is largely drawn from my own father and he was in a state of advanced decline. His life was falling apart and the Trump was in office and just been in the office for about a year. And I'd had some time to think about things that I'd been thinking about for some time. And it seemed to me how we had kind of landed in this mess. And I'd wanted to write a book about my dad. You know, he'd been through this court case in Western Wisconsin, this malpractice lawsuit. And I had a lot of the deposition transcripts and I had all kinds of ancillary information about it. And I wanted to write a short novel that was going to sort of be patterned a little bit on Death of Ivan Ilyich, the Tolstoy short novella. I wanted to write a sort of very simple story, third person story about a doctor, immigrant doctor struggling through a malpractice lawsuit at the end of his career in the rural reaches of Wisconsin, a kind of portrait of America and all of that sort of stuff. And I was trying to write this story and the voice, I just couldn't get the voice right. I just, it was third person and it was, I was going for something like a simplicity and a spareness and it just wasn't working. So after about two to three weeks of just banging my head up against the wall after doing months and months of research and months and months of prep, I put it aside and I was reading widely while I was in Rome at the American Academy. I was reading Livy, I was reading Machiavelli, I was reading Tacitus, I was reading Plutarch. And I ended up continued to have jet lag. It's funny, the older I get, the longer my jet lag lasts. It sometimes <laughs> lasts, you know, three, four weeks at a time. But I was I had jet lag and I was in the Academy library late one night and I found a book of poems by Leopardi, the great Italian romantic poet from about 200 years ago. And I opened it to the first poem in his Canti, Sequence of Canti, and the first poem is called To Italy, in which he basically addresses his fellow Italians and reminds them of their past glory and how far they've fallen. And I, I was struck by the parallel of being a writer who wanted to think about what it is that had landed us where we were and what had become of our national politics and what had become of our nation, really. And so I thought to myself, obviously, in a ridiculously grandiose and pretentious way, would it be possible to, is there a voice that I could summon that would address the nation, my fellow citizens, my fellow Americans? I went to sleep that night. Well, woke up the next morning. And, you know, I kid you not, I'm not making this up. It's not just because it's a good story. I woke up the next morning and the first sentence of this book was already forming itself. I followed that impulse and I just let the language, if you will, lead me. It was the first time that I had a language this expansive and precise, this able to sit in uncertainty between dependent clauses and to continue to drive, the predicate could drive us through all of the apposite phrases that would be appended to. I'd never had that ability before. I'd read other writers who had it and I envied it. I envied the ability to sort of accumulate paratactic detail after detail. But somehow it was present in me and there was a drive and a passion and an energy that the language had that I just, I saw, okay, I'm in the presence of something's happening. Something's happening right now. And, you know, I finished that overture, which is a kind of a breathless four-page ode to America. And then the next section, which is about my father, quote unquote, and Donald Trump, came out of me almost, you know, again, I call it on the anniversary of Trump's first year in office. And it came out of me basically around that time. And then one thing led to the next. I mean, the unfolding of the rest of the book was an organic and surprising process and substantially unrevised. I mean, I cut about 15,000 words out of the first draft, but I didn't really rearrange anything. I don't know if that answers your question. <laughs> <laughs> it does, actually. One way of, I think, opening it up just a little bit before I kick it over to Dea is to think about 
The other thing that happens, obviously, in that opening overture is that you're actually talking about, and she appears later, Mary Maroney, a professor of yours, the teacher of American literature. Who also shares the last name with, of course, the great Mormon oracle. So, right. <laughs> sure. But so one of the things here that I'm curious about is the novel as a kind of labile form. So mm-hmm. one that can collect all of these different things for you. And I'm wondering if last week we had been speaking with Arundhati Roy and she had, in her book, someone had described her as walking through the world on two legs, one leg being fiction, the other being nonfiction. Right. And it seems that you're straddling that as well. So can you just talk a little bit sure. about mm-hmm. the novel as a genre and what fiction, quote unquote, helps you to grasp or bring into focus in a way that pure nonfiction can't? Yeah, sure. For those who haven't read it, I'm sure a lot of the people who are going to listen to this will not have yet. The narrator has my name, many of the facts of my life. And I'm calling it a novel because it is a novel. I've substantially composited and compressed and I've sharpened and I've concocted widely throughout the book. But in order to portray a picture of our nation, one of the formal things that I was struggling with or grappling with, grappling is probably a better way to put it, that is trying to find a way into the kind of vivid, present, tense attention of the reader today an attention that is newly curated by this short-form social media, this alighting of attention on things for very brief periods of intense focus, and then a, a movement off of that thing into the next thing with equally intense focus, but almost no connective tissue between those things. And mm. that the platforms themselves, whether it's Instagram or Twitter or Facebook or any natural sort of like Google news feed, is the unifying principle that the conscious, there is no conscious need to unify breaking news with a recipe, with pictures of your favorite model, with any number of other things that you might spend time looking at, say, on Instagram. And so it seemed to me in a similar way that discourses could coexist, whether those discourses were history of antitrust litigation in the United States Mm -hmm. or a discourse on Islamic finance or a dialogue or a monologue about astrology between two lovers or a story about a father's relationship to Donald Trump and what it was like to be in Chicago on November, whatever it was, 2016, as the election was unfolding, that all of these things could coexist within the novel. I mean, it's We all know of the examples of the great sort of baggy novels that are able to contain so much. But what I wanted to do was find a way that was going to be friendly to a reader today who didn't necessarily have the interest in sustaining concentration long enough to hold that baggy monster together. Hmm. So for me, it's less about having two different perspectives, a fiction and nonfiction perspective. I have one perspective, and that's that of a dramatic storyteller. I see drama. I see reversals and recognitions in the landscape that we're in. I see the consequence, the effects of certain causes. I think that the causes of what has happened to us politically lie in the economic shifts that took place 35, 40 years ago. I'm looking synoptically as a dramatist at all of those sorts of things and using dramaturgy as a way of pulling out, doing a kind of archaeology of, let's say, the last 50 years of America through this perspective of this immigrant family, if you will. I think in a way, those two things, to me, seem not to fit intuitively. So to have the kind of distracted attention, really broken storytelling, broken textuality of something like the internet, combined with a natural impulse to storytelling, those two seem like they would be in conflict with each other. 
Yeah. But did you feel comfortable doing that? Did you feel comfortable sort of channeling that? I often get the question who I'm writing for. And the way that I usually answer that question is to say, well, I'm writing for that part of myself that stays interested. So like a child, I will lose interest in a story if I don't know where it's going. And so I'm always paying attention to that core inside myself. And I've noticed the erosion of my own attention and the curation of my own sort of orientations, if you will. And so in writing the book, it was clear that I had to be paying very, very close attention to the points at which I was getting bored with what I was doing. And often that was mid-sentence. So mid-sentence, I'm going to move off into an entirely different resonance, tonality. I'm going to bring some new, strange, prurient, sensationalist attraction that will (laughs) allow me to kind of continue to stay in a hot, vivid cathection with what I'm doing. And it's interesting because, to me, the writer who I learn the most from is always Shakespeare. And it turns out this is what Shakespeare's constantly doing anyway. He's constantly breaking expectation within a single line of an iambic pentameter and setting up an opposition that gets shifted and moved into a completely different direction at the end of a second line. So there is a precedent, I think, in literary form for this kind of vivid and immediate interruption, constant sense of interruption. And it felt to me that the language, that the long sentences and the cadence and musicality of the language that was extra paragraphal at times, you know, it was multi-paragraph sonorities that I was working with, that that could hold a lot of this interruption inside of it. And I think you sort of noticed from page to page, there was also this sense of paying close attention to words that were going to elicit natural emotional responses. It's very similar to what some of the platforms do when they're tracking algorithmic activity, that there are certain words that have a brighter response, a hotter response from the viewer in terms of clicks or retweets and All of that was, again, it's not so much that I was studying this stuff in order to do it. Mm -hmm. It was that this is how my attention has been changed by these devices. And so I was making, if you will, some form of literary peace with it in order to find a way to make a work of literature, really a philosophical novel that had the addictive thrill of, say, reality television or breaking news or something like that. It also makes me think of, there's a part in the book where the character of Ayad he goes to sleep and he talks about the way that he has started interacting with his dreams, which is that he tries to wake up and write them down right when he has them. And he does a sort of a close reading of a dream on a particular night. And it struck me that you said that the first line in this book was also, you woke up, yeah. you kind of had it in your head. Mm-hmm. And it almost sounds like in some ways, like this book, you kind of wrote it like with your subconscious <laughs> like right totally. next to you or something. Yeah, I think it was the first time... I don't want to make any grand claims, but just on a personal level, I think it was the first time I had the craft to release and relax into exactly what you're talking about. And so that I had the ability to marshal sound and meaning in such a way that I didn't have to know where something was going. And I could trust that I had a process in place and a language to match it that was going to contain and hold this process for me. And one of the things that was, I think, to me, really the most surprising thing about writing this book, because much of the time that I was writing this book, it was an act of survival, to be honest. I mean, I didn't necessarily think, I knew my publisher wanted a book for me, but I didn't know whether there was going to be any audience for this book. I was writing in this very unusual way that felt like it was very available, but it was so developed and I was using a lot of weird language and weird words and very developed sentences and 
At the same time, I wasn't necessarily following a clear, coherent storyline, but it turned out that the coherency of my preoccupations over the past, say, dozen years, those thoughts have been so consistent, the thinking about debt, the thinking about Orientalism, the thinking about the writing process, the thinking about what's happened to my family, watching my father's decline. All of these things were so coherently felt, if you will, that when I was able to sort of pour it out on the page almost into a blind present, there was a coherency there that was not the coherency of my actual life. Because I think that's the fiction that I'm struggling with at times in interviews. I did one interview with a very well-known NPR show in which the almost the entire interview is, well, was this true? And was this true? And was that true? And was I listened true? to that. <laughs> I listened but, to it. Yeah. yeah. And they cut out a lot of the sort of more offensive versions of the, is this true? But I understand because in a sense, that's the game I'm trying to also play with the viewer or the reader. I want to, in this era of the collapse of fact and fiction, I do think that one of the things that a work of art can do is to mirror back the reality, is mimesis, to mirror back the reality that we are in. And I think the confusion about what is real, what is metaphorical, what can be read as literal, what can be read as literary, that that confusion is very much a confusion of our time. And I Mm -hmm. wanted to mirror that. It surprises me a little bit to think that you didn't know that there would be a readership for this book because as I was reading it, I was thinking about how it was helping me to process what I think of as very quotidian, everyday anxieties about what's happening. They're reflected through the particular experience of your character, but they are quite broad. And one of those is there's a kind of late, very late in the book, there's a description of teaching Whitman. So they're reading Democratic Vistas, and I find it odd that it's like the students are kind of, in some ways, this representation is that they're shocked. And this is true to teaching Whitman, actually, more generally, but that it's like, oh, I still recognize this kind of adhesive kind of vision of the nation. And I think what struck me so powerfully in your book is not only the kind of alienation that your character, the protagonist, Ayad, feels, but how so many of us feel in different ways that same kind of alienation. Right. Like right. in many ways, it seems to me that if I were to read about, you know, Whitman, whom I dearly love and whose adhesive vision of the polity I respect and long for, it seems like a kind of utopian fantasy right yeah. now. So can you just talk about this oscillating, which your character also experiences, this oscillating feeling of attachment and deep alienation? And all of that is circulated by a desire so powerful for attachment. I can't express the <laughs> delight of your question because it's an indication of such a deep sense of understanding and engagement with what I was trying to do. And that it came off and that I had a reader who responded the way you just did is incredibly moving to me. It's interesting. Again, I come back to this question of craft and I come back to the question of relaxation. That for me, there was finally an ability in the language, to stay in the unknown. And in being in the unknown, it was clear to me that I longed for things that I didn't necessarily believe I was going to get, but I still longed for them. And I still aspired to things that I suspected might never, ever be accomplishable. And that the articulation of all of that had its own richness and drama that I didn't have to actually... The narrator at the beginning of the book says these will be no songs of celebration and these multitudes will not be my own. And of course, Mm -hmm. 
the narrator's quoting Leaves of Grass, is quoting mm-hmm. Song of Myself, and is making a case that what is now going to unfold is a version of a Whitman-esque project. And it's by design, of course, that the book ends with Whitman as well, because it's through this journey. But of course, it's an impossibility to imagine that one could marshal a vision that <laughs> that optimistic and that connected to the future, the bright future that America could be. I'm writing an elegy. I'm writing the yeah. opposite of what Whitman wrote. Right, and funeral so, but, songs. But, yeah, Exactly, but again, that tension can live. I can be inspired by Whitman. I can have come to my language from Whitman. I can have learned about parataxis, American parataxis, from mm. Whitman. All of that can be what I am, and I can still never come close to being living in a world where Whitman made sense any longer. And the ability to hold that paradox together is not just an intellectual one. I think for me, it's primarily a linguistic one. And that was the thing that, for whatever reason that I can't account for, maybe it's just 35 years of practice, that finally it felt like, okay, I think I can do this. It's, I'm doing it. It's not even that I think I can do it. It's happening on the page. I see it. You are listening to the LARB Radio Hour, recorded remotely. We've been speaking with Ayad Akhtar, author of Homeland Elegies. We'll return to that conversation in just a moment, but first, we have this week's book recommendation. So we have Vivian Gornick on the line with us today. Uh, Vivian, you know, she actually doesn't really need an introduction, so I'm going to skip that. But I will say that her latest book is called Unfinished Business, Notes of a Chronic Rereader, and it obviously made sense for us to ask her for a book recommendation. Vivian, what book are you going to recommend? I recommend reading a collection of personal essays called The Little Virtues by Natalia Ginsburg. It is a soulful book and a great pleasure. Okay, can you tell us more about the book? How did you first come to it? Oh, oh, I can't remember that actually. It's many, many years and I've reread that book many, many times and it has taught me a lot. In fact, there's one piece in it, my vocation on how she became a writer, which I could read once a year, profitably, for years. I don't remember how I came upon it so long ago, but it has meant a great deal to me and to everyone who loves her work. It's the prize, prize work. What she does there is to turn the personal narrative into art. She makes of her own experience, she fashions art out of putting her own experience together in such a way that comes out literature. (laughs) What is it about that piece in particular that draws you back to it? My vocation? It's a very classy description of passing from youthful apprenticing, a youthful idea of what it is to be a writer, to an apprenticeship, to finally discovering herself as a writer. And she did that for me. She made me see what suits me to write. She made me see that part of the struggle of becoming a writer is indeed to identify accurately what you can do and what you can't do, and then what you do do. And that was uh, very useful for me. It sounds really good. Will you tell us the title of the book again and the author? The Little Virtues, Natalia Ginsburg. Thank you so much, Vivian. Vivian Gornick. Her latest book is called Unfinished Business. You are listening to the LARB Radio Hour, 
We now return to our conversation with Ayad Akhtar, author of Homeland Elegies. I want to go back to what you said a little bit earlier, where you said that writing this book was a, a question of survival. Could you explain what you mean by that? Sure. I have been plagued. Uh, I've been so fortunate. So let me start by saying that. And I'm just saying it as a, as a matter of, 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 you know, some form of virtue signaling. It's, it's mm-hmm. really like, I am so unbelievably fortunate. I have so many friends who are so talented, who have struggled and continue to struggle and can't make ends meet. And I, you know, for whatever odd reason, have succeeded well, you know, enough to be able to, to continue to do this and to do this full time with my life. Mm-hmm. And that is an extraordinary thing. And I, 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 I never forget that any, on any given day. But I will say it has not been easy, especially the last 10 years when as a writer, as an American writer, as somebody who's trying to articulate the fault lines of American experience, to be hounded by this question around my identity. It's a truly and profoundly exhausting proposition. It's hard to make sense of just the other night, somebody asking me on a, on a radio show, so, it, you know, I read your book, and it, congratulations, I really enjoyed it. You know, it seems like it's really hard for Muslims in America after 9-11, to which my response, you know, to which my response was, yeah, this happened 19 years ago. <laughs> so if that's your question, I really don't know how to answer it. I mean, is it really a surprise that life has been hard for Muslims in America after 9-11? It's, it's 19 years ago, and we still don't seem to be able to have a mature conversation, let alone nuanced or historically informed, but let's even say a mature conversation about 9-11. So the constant, constant hounding and often, you know, accompanied by awards, right, yeah. of this process of accounting for my identity, whatever the whatever that means. You can mm. say it. You can okay. go, go ahead. This the, is your chance. Whatever the fuck that means. <laughs> yeah, there we go. Right? It, which, which is, you know, it's I'm existing in some tension with my own community because I'm a writer writing about my community. I am not in public relations, but but this constant tension of and and again, it speaks to much deeper shifts within this sort of social body and around intellectual and artistic discourse in our society, which has always had a sort of questionable relationship to art, but notwithstanding, you know, the economic the necessity for economic accountability, the, the accountability of what, what is the tangible good that art is doing, whether it's at a program level or whether it's, you know, that thinking has so overtaken arts production and cultural production that in a way, accounting for what we do and having a decocted meaning that is something that we offer before we even offer the work that identifies us as, as advocates of a certain, you know, of a certain ilk or a certain cause or a certain that this is what is, this has come to stand in for a poetics. It's not a poetics. It's not a poetics in the rightful term of what poetics are. It's a politics, and that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that, but it's not a poetics. And so, so I think that the question of survival was one of saying, look, the country's falling apart. I see something. I see a country riven by divides, by divides between rural and urban, between the heartland and the coast, between economic classes, between races, between gender identities. I see a nation divided, and I feel like I have an understanding of some of what's happened. Guess what? Has nothing to do with Islam. That's the argument of the book. Yeah, I th- I, it's very powerfully said. I think 
to take this in a slightly different direction, but somewhat related because I think it gets to the like the the nuance and texture that you bring not only to the kind of holding up a mirror function of the book and in a way that allows us to to see the inchoate moment that we're in in all of its inchoateness, but also the kind of like how deeply complex and I guess for lack of a more elegant word like unpigeonholable like you know, individual subjects are. And I think that that you arrive, particularly at the relationship between the protagonist, Ayad, and his father, at one of these kind of impasses that I think sacrifices none of the nuance of lived experience, but has a sit with a real problem, right? So, So one way of getting into this is to ask you a little bit about diasporic consciousness in the novel. Mm -hmm. Right. right about a protagonist and his parents who yeah. are themselves almost pulled in three different directions right. by the kind of the history of Pakistan mm-hmm. and also their experience in the US um, right. and and again just one way to tee this up a little bit the seeing the difference between the political and affective loyalties of the mother, you know, who feels more tied or has, I guess, I I don't want to say romantic, but uh, a more affective attachment to Pakistan. Um, And the father who effectively wants to rewrite all kinds of histories that the protagonist (laughs) like walks through in order to kind of cathect himself to the dream of America that he has to constantly reinvent in the present. Yeah. So can, can you just talk about that a little bit and kind of how sure. you get at the problem of diaspora in the novel? Well, it's, it's interesting. I mean, I, again, I'm just, I'm, I'm terrifically moved by the, the, the subtlety of your reading. I, I would say that, that for me, the way that I got to it, to the various textures and vibrancies and registers that you're, that you're describing was mimesis that I got to it by being true to, to what the experience that I observed has been. And to have a space, a discursive and artistic field where that could be free and it didn't have to mean anything in particular. The fact that the mother, that she longs for home, that she doesn't feel that you know this new American homeland that she's in really provides her with sufficient compensation for the things that she has left behind, uh, that doesn't believe that the values that are espoused by Americans are, are values that she shares or that they even really fully believe themselves. And that could coexist with a father who is constructed in opposition, but who is also constructed as a unique identity himself, who, as you say, is very in, enamored with certain aspects of the American experience, most notably the freedom to make money <laughs> and what that in, signifies and entails and what, what the expression of, of making it, if you will, in that monetary sense, means about him as an American, as somebody who wishes to be American. And, and I think quite brilliantly, the way you said, the way he's willing to rewrite <laughs> the history of Pakistan in order to justify that. Yeah. And of course, and on the other hand, the, the rewriting of American history on the part of the mother in order to justify an anti-imperialist and anti-capitalist position that brings her uncomfortably close to being a supporter of bin Laden at one point uh, true. In, the, right. in, in right. the book. And, and interestingly, you know, the, again, an opposition that is both conscious and natural uh, to a father who is uncomfortably close to, a, you know, being a cipher for Trump in the book. 
So between Trump and bin Laden are all of the nuances of the reaction to 21st century America, whether it's the endorsement of a debt-fueled American individualism on steroids or whether it's a militant and, you know, murderous anti capitalist anti-materialist response. Wait, can we talk just very quickly to about this the point of the fathers kind of and you use this term I think uh, almost like a romance relationship <laughs> yes. with yes. with Trump and this happens as the son is saying, "Look, dad, are you listening? Are you listening to this anti-Muslim, anti-immigrant rhetoric? Are you recognizing also that you are Muslim, that you are Im- an immigrant?" And yet the father clings, I mean, against, and this is an open question, I think, why he does this, like clings against all reason and against yeah. the emotional appeals of his own son yeah. to this fantasy that he even sees crumbling before his eyes. Yeah. Yeah. So can, can you talk about what, how you wrote that relationship and what motivates that character? Because I think that's a key to a thing that has been befuddling to many of us yeah. over the past four years and the past six. You know, I, it's, it's, a, it's a fantasy. You know, it's a, the, the father in the book becomes enamored with a certain kind of American dream. And that American dream is, as it's, you know, it's, it's, something, it's something like the kind of empty ersatz glitter and glamour of success so wonderfully and cravenly expressed by by Trump and his rise i mean now we know what now now it is confirmed what everyone has known all along if they had any knowledge of such things that you know he is worth so much less than than he has ever imagined or claimed that he was and has never paid taxes i mean of course none of it is a surprise it's all it's all horseshit and on some level, you know, it stands in for the casino, if you will, that is the American experience to so many. And where America's the, the casino and, and we are all the marks. So I think that, you know, to me to get all of, again, as I said earlier, I wanted to write a philosophical novel about America that had the, addic- the addictive thrill of reality television, right? That, that's, that was really kind of the the goal in a way that was the, the personal emotional stake craft stake that I had in order to do that, I had to traffic in relationship. I couldn't traffic in ideas. And so focusing on the effective order, you know, all of that stuff with the father, all of that stuff between the father and the son, that's the heart of the book. That's the heart of the, of the, the narrative experience. And to be able to understand what has happened to this country data. Sure. Sure. That helps you know, historical and intellectual genealogy helps. But ultimately, I think something like understanding the profoundly romantic attachment that the father has to Donald Trump maybe helps even better. I had a, a friend, a poet, who who refused to read novels because he felt that they tricked him into uh, caring <laughs> about the story. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, and he, he stuck with poetry because novels felt like a trick. Yeah. And when as you're talking, it kind of strikes me that you kind of pull a little trick on the reader in that way. Oh, totally. Do totally. you feel conflicted about that at all? Do you feel well, like should I should I do that? 
No, I don't, because you know, again, this comes back to that that craft question, where there's just there was just for whatever reason no longer a concern about uh, about the end. Mm-hmm. I was happy to be in the middle. I was happy to always be in the middle. I didn't need to know how anything ended or what the meaning of anything was. The sentences didn't need to close on some certainty. They could revolve around uncertainty in this vivid way that I'd never been able to to muster before, which was the vividness of experience itself. That experience is that the experience before certainty, before we think. And so there's all these critiques of storytelling in in the book. You know, I mean, I I, I at various points critique, uh, you know, make fun of uh, screenwriting techniques that people use to enlist the sympathies of of the audience with a character and. You know, as I'm making fun of this stuff, if you are, if one's paying close attention, you notice that I've used every single one of them. <laughs> and so, to me, one of the things that I think is so powerful, and again, the, the uh, paradigm for me is Shakespeare in that respect. Is nobody has ever done it as well as he did, which is to both assert and negate a meaning at the same time, often within a single line of iambic pentameter. Mm. And the ability, what that does, it's not just a philosophical or conceptual thing. It actually creates a kind of it ionizes the space between those oppositions. That when, when meaning is powerfully and vividly and beautifully and arrestingly asserted, and when it is equally arrestingly negated, we, the experiencers, experiencers of language or of narrative, exist inside this tension. And that tension is, is there's a heightened, and I think, again, it goes back to mimesis. To me, this is what it feels like to be alive is to not know. So, so yes, I'm tricking. I'm also drawing attention to the trick. And I'm, I am suggesting perhaps that absorption itself in the experience that we spend together talking about these things, looking at them, may be enough of an experience or an attainment for the reader to walk away, feel like they don't necessarily know anything more than what they knew when they read the book, but somehow are deepened for it. Hmm. So, so maybe with that in mind, and in terms of spinning stories and spinning stories about the country, how are you going into this election? How, what, what is your mindset? And if, do, you have, do you have advice about what to keep in mind as we go into it? I mean, we're in it, but you know, we, let's we are, into the we last hellish weeks. Yeah. I, 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 you know, I have a few different levels of thinking about it. And I think that the, the social level for me is that I'm cautiously optimistic that there will be a very strong response at the ballot box and that, yeah, we may have some mishigas and some confusion. And, uh, but at the end of the day, uh, the American people, uh, although, you know, increasing cohort of them seem to believe that the Democratic Party want to drink the blood of their children, uh, which is a very strange development, I think, in, in the body politic. But I think that the, the American people will deliver a strong rebuke and that we we will finally wake up from this nightmare as, uh, you know, the protagonist, young protagonist of Philip Roth's uh, plot against America wakes up one morning and things have, uh, things are different because we have a new president. So that's the social mean. I think there's a, there's a, there's a more concerned private series of reflections that I've been undergoing now for, for some time uh, in which I see parallels with, with uh, you know, the late Roman Republic 
and I and I, I I think that the transition from Caesar to Augustus has many many lessons, and I think unfortunately one of those lessons may be uh, that Hegel wasn't wrong when he suggested that Caesar was really just expressing a need given the advanced state of decay of the Republic's fundaments and that Caesar was not enough of a event in the experience of the Roman empire, what would eventually become the Roman empire to effect that transition. And that the real transition away from the Republic and to an authoritarian rule, which was actually very peaceful and prosperous for 200 years, um, was affected by his successor, Augustus. And that if you look at sort of what's happened with the, you know, the state's monopoly on violence and how we, we may be in a transitional period where the military may have more to say about all of this than, than we are used to in our, in our history. Trump doesn't have the military. And so perhaps we're in a transitional moment and perhaps this is not really the election that is going to determine the future of our experiment, but that it's really 2024 that will do that or 2028 when there can be a consolidated, there can be support for a candidate who has Trump's authoritarian inclinations and is expressing something about the need for centralized power in a country that has crumbled, where the democratic institutions are crumbling and where that figure who arises, the next one, does have the support of the military. And then we're looking at what Masha Gessen calls the authoritarian breakthrough. Mm. I don't think we're, we're not there yet, but the outlines, if we look historically at what's happened, the outlines are there. And, and at least from a dramatic point of view, you know, and of course I am a dramatist and somebody who does see the world from, through those angles, the picture is, is just more compelling than I wish it was. So... Between those two poles, and again, this is a similar to the a lot of the answers that I've given. I, I exist comfortably inside the tension between that social self and the private self that's reflecting about all of this. Well, hopefully, we can all join you there. In that <laughs> um, thank you so much, Ayad, for joining us. No, this is such a pleasure. Thank you. I, I know I talk too much, but but thank you for letting me. Not at all. It was perfect. This was um, great. Thanks so much. We've been talking to Ayad Akhtar. His latest book is called Homeland Elegies. Thank you so much for listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. If you like the show, please rate us on Apple Podcasts. That will help us get the word out, and we'd love to hear from you. The producers of the LARB Radio Hour are Medea Ocher, Kate Wolf, and Eric Newman. The executive producer is Alan Minsky. Our sound engineer is William Broughton. Editorial production by Jake Levins. Our intro music was written and performed by Imogen Teasley-Vlotton. The publisher and editor-in-chief of the LA Review of Books is Tom Lutz.